What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's definitely the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State, and I'm leading the ship today. I am joined by my co-host, Jessica Luther, freelance sports reporter in Austin, Texas, and Brenda Elsie, my fellow historian, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University. And together today, we have quite a show for you. First, we're going to talk about Russia's WADA ban, or is it? <laughs> and then Brenda is going to chat with Nemesia Hijos, a feminist leader in Argentine football. They're going to chat about the major changes in the politics of Boca Juniors, one of the world's most storied football clubs. And then we're going to wrap things up by chatting about the year, or the so-called year, of the Black QB. Of course, we'll be burning some things, we'll shout out some badass women, and we'll tell you what's good in our lives. But before we dive into all that, I have to ask you guys, did you see this video of the creepy-ass Raven (laughs) at the Ravens game? The Ravens are now including, they they, uh, debuted this augmented reality technology that flew a computerized lifelike raven through the stadium in the middle of the game (laughs) and like even when they were tweeting it people were like what i don't yeah i don't yeah i mean i saw it because you sent it to us i don't get it like so when you're in the audience you obviously don't see the raven so like where (laughs) where do you see it just on the screen wait the audience didn't see the raven well it's not like flying over their heads I thought it was. So, though. like, how does it work? <laughs> I thought it was. <laughs> it's not because AR is normally just a screen, right? Where you like you hold the no, screen I up think and they then can. no, I just because like, I, I just did like the... it's in the stadium because I just did the void, okay. which is a new VR game, like a escape game, but like you're in it, and I just did this with Samari, like it was like Jumanji themed. Okay. And yeah, I know we have like goggles, but it literally feels like you're in the jungle. That's all you see. So I'm like, I, when I saw this, I was like convinced. I feel like I need a firsthand account from someone in the audience to understand. So like they, they can see it above their heads. So then why would they waste time doing it with just the script? I have no idea. <laughs> oh, so the people in the stadium couldn't see it if they looked up, but they could see it if they looked on the screen. They looked on the screen. Okay. Why they, did they like, do re- this? I don't know. They reacted. <laughs> I feel like there's been a push for technology into stadiums, but it's like, give us Wi-Fi in stadiums, not flying ravens. <laughs> Well, that would be true technology. Think, all I could think of is like, would every 
stadium try to do this with every mascot what no, that might look then like we'll be like oh, penguins no. oh. like i was thinking like oh, my head went like okay. penguins lions tigers that would be awful and then because i thought it would go back to like the creepy white men mascot problem that yes, we talked about yes, before because exactly. if i see a I patriot charge, washington right yeah. i'm out i'm just gone <laughs> i don't want any part of that but then okay, i do part of- i do want a penguin yeah. I'm, on, I'm pro yeah. penguin. Pro penguin. <laughs> but it it did make me feel like maybe it would bring the native mascotry debate to a new level. Oh yeah, like if every could, stadium yeah. tried to do it, I'm like, hmm, what about the the like Cleveland baseball team? Right. Well, I mean, I would say, Whoa. and also thinking about like the University of Texas, where they you know drug <laughs> this giant thousand pound Longhorn or whatever and keep him on the side, like. For think of the Longhorns that they could just augment instead of actually drug doping them? and yeah, because they're super dangerous. So they have to like keep them calm, and I'm pretty sure that that's how they do it. There was this famous video like a year ago. My friend Danny took it. He was he's a statesman reporter here in town, and it was like the was it the Georgia Bulldog? There was some tiny tiny little animal on the for the other team, and like the Longhorn went after it, oh, and shit. like all the reporters <laughs> and photographers had to get out of the way. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> So, like, that's another, like, I agree with Brenda, like, it could bring this up to a head, but also think of, like, all the little animals that they could just, or the giant animals that they could just augment. That would be better. Oh, my god! But it would be so scary. Can you imagine a longhorn running at you in mixed reality? No, you should look up the video. Now everyone has to go look up the video. And while you're there, also look up my favorite video ever, which is Eric Berry, who is, when he played for the Kansas City Chiefs, you know, they have again racist mascots riding in on a horse but he's terrified of horses and so there's a <laughs> video from years ago before he had like taken leave for to um deal with his his cancer i love him as a player and as as a person but he's terrified of horses so they have him mic'd up for one episode and the horse comes in and he's the whole time that he's mic'd up he's like where's the horse oh no i saw the horse move <laughs> like it's scary like it is the funniest most endearing thing so go watch yeah. the terrifying longhorn video and then you can chase that with eric berry's i'm scared of horses video <laughs> so there you are so thanks for indulging me on that i'm glad that you also have no clue what was going on because i feel better <laughs> about life We have talked about systemic doping by Russia on the show before. I looked it up like I like to do. So if you want to hear that, episodes 32 and 73 to be exact. The shortest version, and I've really tried here, is that Russia had a sophisticated system to get around drug testing that came to full fruition during the 2014 Sochi Olympics. Grigory Rodchenkov, the former Moscow lab director, he's the main whistleblower. The IOC punished Russia just before the 2018 Winter Olympics and then reinstated them three days after, because why have a spine? Since then, the World Anti-Doping Agency, or WADA, we'll talk about WADA over and over again, has been going back and forth about what to do about Russia. There's a lot of stuff in the weeds that I don't think we necessarily have to get into. Just know that Russia was supposed to follow a bunch of rules. It hasn't. Sometimes governing bodies ignore it. Sometimes they don't. And a lot is hard to know about like what all Russia was up to because the Russians have, against the rules, destroyed a ton of data and files about their system. So the recent big news earlier this week, WADA banned Russia from international competition, including and especially the Olympics for the next four years, which sounds 
big and major on its face, right? Here's how the New York Times summarizes the punishment. Quote, under the ban, Russia's flag, name, and anthem would not be allowed at the Tokyo Games next summer or the Beijing Winter Olympics in 2022. Though the competitive effects may be minimal, Russian athletes not implicated in doping are expected to be allowed to compete in the Olympics and other world championships, but under a neutral flag. The World Anti-Doping Agency also barred Russian sports and government officials from the Games and prohibited the country from hosting international events. (laughs) The decision, which Russia has 21 days to appeal, most likely will set up a series of confrontations in the coming months and years as Russia fights to have its athletes and teams compete at major events. Okay, the point of emphasis is that this bans Russia, the entity of Russia, and not Russian athletes, right? So you can't, like, Russian teams can compete, but you can't have the word Russia on your uniform. You know, I don't know if anyone remembers, but in the Winter Olympics last time, they were the OAR, right. the Olympic athletes from Russia. So you could say Russia there, but not just Russia by itself. I don't know. One of the big punishments is that Russia isn't supposed to host international events. I love all of this because it's so stupid. But it's participating in hosting the Euro 2020 and is allowed to under the ban because according to this, there's a New York Times explainer, the Euro Euro is considered a continental event not a world championship or one open to athletes from all over the world. So therefore, the ban doesn't apply. Cool. As for the World Cup, which is the other big major international competition, they can compete to qualify. If they make it, they can play. Again, they just can't have Russia on their uniform or the flag or the anthem or whatever. Lots of athletes and even people in WADA have spoken up and said that this is barely a ban and certainly not enough for what Russia's done. So there's two things that I think are most interesting here. The way that Russia paints this as a Russia versus the West, I think, is a very important diplomatic and political thing. Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev, who I'd honestly forgot existed, and I thought that I forgot that Russia had a prime minister until this, said that the penalties were a, quote, continuation of anti-Russian hysteria, right? And we, I don't think we need to get into all of it, but I think most people probably have an understanding of lots of people are questioning Russia interfering in their politics in in very real ways. And then, of course, the hosting of major international tournaments. More and more, as we've talked about, there's these events keep going to authoritarian places, right, where governments can make unilateral decisions about whether or not they're going to host them and how they're going to host them. And so pissing off countries like Russia could spell doom in a lot of ways for the future of these competitions, at least how we imagine them now. So like how decisions around these countries are made, they're like, carefully done, but also poorly done because the future of these competitions is so tenuous. So there's a lot of stuff here. What did you all think about WADA's decision? Does it feel like it has any kind of teeth? Do you think it will matter? Do you care about WADA? Right. No, it doesn't feel particularly toothy. And it's interesting to me, like you said, so I don't know if uh, you all recall last year and then earlier this year, Besides from doping, there's been allegations and some of them proven that Russia also targeted both WADA and the IOC and hacked their systems and extended emails (laughs) in order to to discredit anti-doping measures and articles and stuff like that. So you see that there is already a kind of retaliation. When you said that, Jess, that's what it made me think of, a retaliation for these measures, these anti-doping measures, however toothless they might be. And I do have to say this fall, I, I experienced this firsthand as I was doing research in Switzerland at the Olympic Study Center. 
because my computer is a university computer that has a lot of firewalls, it sparked all of this concern on their servers because they're so guarded against Russian hackers. And it resulted in a lot of, it was actually a quite terrifying day because they like accused me of cyber attacking the Olympics. And I was like, I promise you, I don't know how to do that. (laughs) But, you know, part of it was a thorough search of my computer and all these questionings. And, you know, I didn't find out until later that they wanted to bring me down to a headquarters to further question me. They wanted to see my passport. It was really, I mean, some of it was intensified because I'm black. And like, I know that to be true for, from conversations that happened after, but one of the things, so in the wake of this, some people that I like and work closely with in the Olympic study center was like, well, we wanted to explain some of the anxiety around it. It's because every day we're facing threats from Russian hackers who are continuously trying to hack in and find a way to discredit both the doping stuff, but to stockpile claims against, you know, to be able to combat any future measures that are taken against the country or uh, attempts to bar them from international competition. And so, like, I think that, so why I say it's not particularly toothy is because I think that there's a much larger conversation here about like the a the importance of international competition for state building and if you've seen the documentary Icarus you see really compellingly how the correlation between the Russian performance in Sochi correlated with surge in approval of Putin which correlated to the ability to go on strikes against Ukraine and I think that that's really important to remember and it's and also really important to consider the way that a fear of retaliation is ordering some of the steps here. So, I mean, I don't have any answers because it feels like all like kind of like a movie. Like, what is this? I mean, it will all be movies eventually. But yeah, I just, it was hard for me to like fully understand and believe a lot of the headlines last year until like I was there and I was like, oh, this is like real and it's, and it's, scary. And then on the other hand, it's like, I mean, and this was the discussion last year, do you penalize individual athletes who happen to be from Russia, but then also understand that even the response to that would be, even if they weren't found to be doping, the sophistication in which they, the, you know, Federation fudge test is, is anybody ever really clean? Anyways, those are my initial thoughts, Brenda. Well, you know, it's interesting. In the case of FIFA, I mean, I could just speak a little bit to 2022. FIFA administers its own drug tests, blood and urine. So it'll be interesting to see their interaction with WADA. I mean, I, I they consult them, but they do not have any like power over them, which basically means that... Let me backtrack for a second. So when we're talking about the Euros... The Euros are overseen by UEFA, the European Confederation. They do for, so this gets really complicated. For that, FIFA doesn't control the drug testing or anything about that particular tournament. It goes to the European Confederation. So it would be up to them to enforce some kind of ban over that competition. So it looks like, it looks silly and it is silly, but it's also true 
that these bodies have governance over their competitions. So 2022, FIFA may just say they have the unilateral power to just be like, yeah, it's fine, which they will. I mean, they're not going to, especially when it comes to Qatar and the policies of the Middle East, they're not going to do that. And in addition to that, it'll be interesting to see how, you know, some of these doping allegations and things like that in track and field. And I just want to say one more time, the absolute hypocrisy of saying that you have a doping program to protect athletes bodies from, you know, harm and substances just makes me think Castro Semenya, Castro Semenya, Castro Semenya, Castro Semenya. Me too. And until my brain like explodes. So, you know, there's, there's so much politics in this and there's so much weird science. It is like a movie, but I have absolutely no faith that, that any of this will be enforced personally. Yeah. And I wanted to add Sally Jenkins wrote one of her fiery op-eds in the WAFO about this. And like, she really goes after WADA in it in particular, like Hmm. the governing body making these decisions is not itself good at what it does. Mm. Like one of the things she interviews an expert and he points out that there are more than 300 substances on WADA's ban list that there's almost no evidence for for performance enhancement for most of them. Um, They have lab failures all over the place. Like if you Google WADA lab failure, like you're going to find a ton of stuff. Like they're not good regulating themselves and doing a good job of the very basic thing that they're supposed to do. I don't think doping is basic. I think it's actually incredibly complicated. As Brenda just pointed out, there's a lot of politics involved. But like the thing it's supposed to do, the most basic thing it's supposed to do, it's not even that good at. And yet here they are making these decisions in this like really complicated, socio-diplomatic, international, political landscape. I don't know, like, I'm not even sure what I want to say about that. I just want to point out like that WADA itself is not some neutral body here that it's kind of wild she also points out that like that they're in charge of punishing a state like that that was never the point of wada in the first place and so you know thinking about like it's kind of it's like thinking about the ncaa punishing penn state around sandusky like they weren't ever set up to do that and it sort of all fell apart because of it because they didn't care about that right and so like that wasn't the point of this originally and so where that leaves us, I don't know, but it's just, it's so much, the headline is easy. WADA bans Russia for four years from international competition and everything underneath it though is like super complicated and thorny. Next up, Brenda interviews Nemesia Hijos. I'm so excited today to be interviewing Nemesia Hijos. She's an anthropologist from the University of Buenos Aires And she's also worked for a very long time with the associations, the fans, and the neighborhoods of the very storied and famous Argentine soccer club, Boca Juniors. Nemesia, welcome to Burn It All Down. Hi, everybody. I'm really excited to be part of this podcast. I'm really a fan of this, Uh, so I'm really excited to participate. Well, thanks for being here. Before we get into what was a really interesting week for the women of Boca Juniors, I just want to ask you to explain to listeners a little bit about the structure of of the clubs. Here in the U.S., the sports clubs are all private, you Mm -hmm. know, by and large. So could you just explain a little bit, you know, why a sports club like Boca Juniors is so important? 
Yes, uh, for sure. Uh, the, the main difference is that here in Argentina, we have non-profit civil associations. We don't have clubs as companies, um, as we can see, for example, in Europe, for example. Uh, in Argentina, uh, since they were founded, the clubs, the sport clubs, uh, are really important in uh, social um, activities in everyday life, people here for sociability, for education, also to introduce people in democracy activities, for example, related to elections, uh, to inclusion. And also the clubs here in Argentina are really a really important uh, place to share with different kinds of people, with different uh, classes from different uh, parts of the country also to share places in the same neighborhood. Uh, since the moment where the immigrants arrived to Argentina from Italy or from Spain, especially in the neighborhood of Buenos Aires related to the Puerto, that they came from Genoa, from Italy, they found it since like uh, 100 years ago, these clubs for example, Boga Juniors, and they were a place to share values, lifestyles, and costumes also. So uh, since that moment, uh, 100 years ago, Boca Juniors is still a non-profit civil association. But mm -hmm. uh, since Mauricio Macri arrived uh, as a president of the club in 1995, this structure, this legal mo model, was thinking to change to a company a structure because he came from a business a place. He's a man, a businessman, and his family is also uh, related to business. So he started thinking that the main idea and the perfect model of the club is being related to the administrative way to organize the clubs. And he think especially Changing this legal model is, was the best option to stop with the Barra Bravas, with the violence in Argentina. And also, is, it, it was uh, the best th um, way to um, stop also with the corruption here in, in Argentina. Uh, I think that maybe when Mauricio Macri was uh, elected ad, as a president in the club in 1995, he started thinking in a different model uh, of a club and start um, introducing modernization decisions in the club. For example, uh, he created departments and areas especially dedicated to commercialize the image, the <laughs> image of the club. So basically he wanted to brand. Yes, exactly. Like, to, to make the brand like uh, the same as a sort of private sports club. Exactly. Like the Premier with, League would do or something. Especially with the VIP places in the stadium, the creation of the museum, but it was administrated, uh, it was uh, related with the business wrap. So it wasn't really uh, representing the, the the identity of the neighborhood that is a really poor place of our of our city here in buenos aires so it, it, in that moment i think that some tensions started to to fill with the members of the club uh, some mobilizations and associations started to be founded also in that in that period but i think that in that moment 
Mauricio Macri was also related with really important sport results, especially in men's football. Take away the social function of the club by emphasizing the commodity, the brand, by making structural changes in the stadium, like the VIP seats. At the time, they were winning. Yes. And so it, it sort of overshadowed exactly what he was doing. And even though groups formed, they didn't really give him too hard a time. Mm -hmm. uh, with all this panorama uh, related with modernization process in the club uh, and reorganizing the, the club as a company, but without uh, changing the legal model, Macri managed to position himself as a skilled leader, you know, with knowledge with uh, related to manage management, which prompted him to start a career uh, as a, a as a really recognized uh, politician, and he win, won the, the elections in 2007 uh, while he was the president of Boca Juniors. So he continued he, his career until 2015 in that place related with a uh, two municipal policy, and then he became the president of, of <laughs> our country until. Uh, two weeks ago. <laughs> so I think that here, uh, all these sports uh, results related to men's football were really important to position himself as a political leader and a, a man who was uh, able to manage a really important place or a club here in Argentina. We know that the, the sport clubs have a really a strong place in politics. So I think that this place and his career in Boca Juniors were a really important to uh, jump to the national politics also. Um, I think... So, so just for our listeners again. Yes. So here he, he starts as president of Boca. Yes. Then he goes on to be basically a mayor of Buenos Aires. Yes, exactly. And that, and then he jumps to being the president of the whole country. Yes, in 2015. He's been president now and served his term and his first term. And his government looked a lot like what he was trying to do with, with Boca Juniors too, right? Which yes. is to, you know, emphasize a kind of corporate restructuring. Mm -hmm. What happened recently with the elections in the country and the elections in Boca? Yes. 2019 was a really important year in political issues in Argentina. In August, also in October, we had the national elections and we have been choosing between the continuations of the neoliberal model represented by Mauricio Macri and then the more popular model represented by Alberto Fernández and Cristina Fernández de Kirchner. Uh, being president of Boca Juniors, maybe River Plate also, maybe it's one of the biggest places here uh, with a lot of uh, huge re uh, responsibilities and expositions here in Argentina, maybe also more than in a, a govern a other place in political in the another provinces uh, of Buenos Aires, of Argentina, sorry. And I think that Maybe uh, last week, especially last Sunday, we had one of the most important events here in Argentina because the members of Boca Juniors had the possibility of ending also the Macri's period in the club. Um, we must remember that since uh, I told you before, 1995, when Mar Mauricio Macri started his political career in Boca Juniors, and until tomorrow, because they are going to change uh, the, the position formal 
tomorrow, uh, all the presidents of Boca Juniors were representing the same political direction. He was replaced, Mauricio Macri was replaced in 2008 by Pedro Pompilio, and then he died, <laughs> he passed away, and he was replaced by Jorge Amorameal, that he was the man who won the elections last Sunday. He continued the work in the same line of Mauricio Macri, but he was not representing that model because he was only continuing the, the government of a man who was passed away, who, who, who was dead. So during the last years, uh, since 2011 until last Sunday, Daniel Angelisi was the man who really represents the line, the political line of Mauricio Macri. He is a friend of him and he's also a businessman related to laws in the city of Buenos Aires. He was in charge to also to elect and to form another political leader. In this case, uh, Christian Gribaudo was the, the man who was uh, pretended to be the president elected by Mauricio Macri and also by uh, Daniel Angelisi. But this Sunday, the things really changed in the club. Uh, Jorge Amorameal, that man who replaced Pedro Pompilio, joined uh, Mario Pergolini, that is a man really related to journalism, radio and TV here in Argentina. Maybe you know him. But the strong decision in this formula, this uh, political formula to end the Macri's period, was to include Juan Román Riquelme. Juan Román Riquelme is one of the biggest idols of the club uh, and also the national football in Argentina. He had some differences with Macri and Angelisi around his career because of his contract. The sport results are really important to win or to lose an election. This period with Daniel eh, Angelisi being president and without any championships or really eh, import, important results eh, with the Liber Libertadores, I'm talking about eh, men's football, that <laughs> only at that point they pay attention. Uh, so maybe those things, not having really important sport results, uh, gave not the opportunity to, to continue the, this line as Mauricio Macri or Daniel Angelisi. And another model, maybe representing another line, uh, was the, the formula that was elected this last Sunday. I think that maybe in this year, 2019, here in Argentina, we have a really important role with the women's, women on the streets asking for more rights. And also uh, that mo movement was uh, really important in, in the clubs also. Uh, I think that these movements and these groups and associations were arriving to the clubs some gender commissions and organizations and departments were uh, incorporated in some clubs. Not especially in Boca Juniors because the structure is uh, really different from another social clubs, more little, for example. But Boca wanted, or the, the political leaders wanted to include some of these points to um, have more representation of the women there. Mm -hmm. Okay, when you okay. look then, when you look at Boca Juniors yeah. and you see this new group of leaders yeah. that are on the verge of of being elected, mm -hmm. how do you, how can we understand 
the very dynamic kind of sort of new leadership of women in these clubs in South America? Like, what's going on? Hmm. I think that uh, women, really the protagonists in, in slogans and also the in the institutional photos on, or pictures, but they are not really included to dispute politics in the clubs uh, because football is also a space uh, it's still a space related with the macho uh, logics, you know. I think that maybe the movement and the reorganizations of the clubs and also the politics in Argentina is going in another in another line, you know. For example, they are pushing to introduce some changes and movements into the clubs and to restructure the institutions. But because the politics is still in charge of the men, they don't have really representation and places there. So we are trying to to push them <laughs> to push them and to make them to to follow the law. You know here we have the the sport law uh, since the 2015 and this law have a point that says we must include in these institutions related with social or with the sport activities that the 20% of this institution must include women and also young people. But nobody is following that law. And <laughs> this movement in Argentina related with the rights of the women, not only related with the, the, the legal abortion, but to have more rights, they are pushing these political leaders in the institutions and in the clubs to follow this law and also to represent and incorporate in a really good and a genuine a way women and also the, the places to form them and to include them, the lifestyle and in the activities and, in, and to give them really the, the, the important the importance that we need, no? Because I think that maybe... Boca, for example, during all this year, was really think about uh, to to include in in, the, in this planification of the year. They consider the women, but I think that they include them as in a marketing way, you know, because for example, they they. Put them on the on the fan page or with, on the social media, and they mm -hmm. they were talking that, for example, this club is the only club that we have 23 professional contracts of the player of the gladiadoras that they are the the females, the women. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And they were saying, and they they were promising more meetings or more, more matches of the gladiadoras in the bombonera. But they were only in a marketing place, you know. So, Nemesia, what else is new about this election? Yes, I think that this election was also important because they were around 84,000 of members of the club ready to vote. It was estimated to participate uh, more or less the half of that, that amount because a lot of members of the clubs are in the provinces of the country, and that the, uh, last Sunday we didn't have much at the stadium. So it was not really possible to all the members 
from the other provinces start traveling to to the club. We don't have uh, digital elections. We have only the possibility to travel to the club and to the stadium to vote. So instead of all this different and, and difficult situation, we found that the a new record was marked in the history of the clubs in Argentina with the participation of uh, more than 38,000 uh, members, and especially women have a really important place in this last election because um, they elect and they vote for Jorge Amora Meal, for Mario Paragolini, and also for Juan Roman Riquelme. And this difference of the elections were really important of uh, the women because 20,000 of votes uh, around the uh, 54% of the total amount of the members vote for this list of Jorge Amorameal. And in the other election, uh, the last ele election in 2015, we found that around 26,000 of people vote. So we have in this election more than 12,000 people voting, more than in the last. And also we found that more women were participating in the in this last election. I think with all this movement of the new namenos, the legal abortion, the Me Too, we have a lot of women trying to participate and to decide and to be in part in the political everyday life of the club and also to start well, uh, choosing for different kind of values and trying to 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 make a stop of this Macri's uh, period in the club, we found that a lot of women were participating in associations like Coordinadora de Inchas, like uh, Bocas Pueblo, Bocas Nuestro, different uh, associations related with identity to preserve the stadium, to to give more importance of the neighborhood, to pay more attention to gladiadoras, to the women's football, to start participating in the elections and in the everyday life club. So I think that women were really the point to change and to stop with the Macris period, the 24 years of the Macris period in Boca Juniors. Good luck with Boca Juniors and thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. Thank you, uh, you for all this opportunity. I have a really good time with you. I hope you enjoy it. All right, I don't know how many of y'all watch SNL anymore or me neither. Tell us about it. I just see clips on Twitter. One of the clips on Same. Twitter from last night, Saturday, December, f whatever, 14th, was a clip of all the conversations around all these mythical holiday tables. And on the Black family table, you had um, a great line that said, Lord, thank you for the not one, not two, not th but three black quarterbacks that have beaten Tom Brady this season. Colin Kaepernick, you move in mysterious ways. <laughs> and I thought that was a great entry point into a discussion of the black quarterback. Uh, many are calling this year the year of the black quarterback. For those of you who aren't following 
the NFL. We talked a little bit last week about Lamar Jackson. It even got Jessica to watch an NFL game. Yeah, it <laughs> For really the first did. time in a while. But yeah, so if you're not following, the reigning MVP is a black quarterback. Highest paid player in the league is black quarterback. The number one draft pick and future MVP is a black quarterback. This is certainly a time of heightened visibility on the backs of Russell Wilson, Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, of course, Dak Prescott. Deshaun Watson and it is certainly feels like a more visible time for black play callers this has led to as you can expect a number of pieces (laughs) as an (laughs) and stuff like that but I guess I, I wanted to have a conversation about personally for me the ways that I still see ideas around black men's inability to play quarterback still cropping up in the analysis of of these quarterbacks but also thinking about if the rhetoric around my kind of big question that we can build to we can work to is the rhetoric around crowning this year of black quarterback a way that obfuscates the treatment of one black quarterback who's no longer in the league and never will be again so there's that we can build to it but what say you friends is this a the year of the black quarterback. Well, yeah, I mean, it is in lots of ways. And I mean, one thing I wanted to bring up quickly, though, was that last week, I think it was last week, Amira, your burn was about the racist commentary around Lamar Jackson. Was that last week, two mm-hmm. weeks ago? It was um, last week. week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then since then, we've had, I mean, Doug Gottlieb, like I'm burned, like I just, I don't, sad to even mention him. But I mean, he made these like ridiculous statements about picking Sam Darnold over Lamar Jackson, like, because let me get it right. It's the long-term play. If you want to tell me that Lamar Jackson is a good long-term play, then you're going to have to, then you're going to tell me that Cam Newton was a good long-term play. That what? Like you're using Cam Newton an NFL MVP, someone who took his team to the Super Bowl as like a, the negative measure of, of course, a black quarterback who got a lot of shit for his, you know, quote unquote attitude or whatever, as like the negative that you're comparing Lamar Jackson to in order to hold up this like mediocre white man as quarterback, like the racism that comes when as soon as you're like, as soon as we see all these black men playing quarterback, which is this revered, you know, brainy position. In football, we are also that means, of course, dealing on the other side with all these ridiculously public racist statements about these men. Right. Uh, you know, that both have to both end up happening at the same time. I exactly. Just, I, I hate that dynamic. And the idea that Lamar Jackson's having the season that he's having and there's still questions. He's setting records. Or, yeah. Nobody does this when white quarterbacks have a record-setting year. They don't immediately like, how long is this going to last? Or, but right, is this about right. long-term stuff? Or this is all going to come crashing down? Like the very space afforded, it's the NFL, right? Exactly. <laughs> like the very space afforded so anyway. to continue questions about Lamar Jackson, despite the fact that he's proving 
all the priest scouts, like everybody wrong is really, really, really indicative of the fact that, yeah, there may be more black quarterbacks, but that hasn't changed people's minds about black quarterbacks whatsoever. You can also see this in how much people continue to say, oh, he's a, he's a running quarterback or he just plays in that style of play. Yes, like, they this talk is, about it mm-hmm. so it, much. And it's so coded. Yes. It's so coded. Like, you know, and I think that's the thing that you still see and with more of them, it's amplified even more. But this language and this this kind of racial rhetoric and racist rhetoric around playing styles, around their longevity, around their decision making, around their attitude, all of that is still steeped and embedded in the racism and racist thought that is still here, that we're seeing each week. And every time somebody writes another piece or makes an offhand comment about the camouflage of the ball or, you know, scrutinizes if they'll be able to do this again next year, it's not, these are not football questions largely. And it's just a lot. Brenda. Can I mention uh, can I mention one quick thing yeah. on this? Going back to Cam Newton, I remember there was a game that Cam Newton played in and he was like de- like I don't know targeted is the right word because there's like an actual rule against targeting, but like hit really hard like six different times where people were like why wasn't there right. a flag? Yes. Right? Which again, we can go back to like who gets calls? Who's considered more like they're wearing armor, right? right. Like that they don't need um, as much protection, like all these sorts of things. Like there's racism built into that too. Exactly. And so the idea that like Cam Newton isn't playing right now because he's been so injured, but yeah, he also didn't get calls when he should have gotten calls and teams went after him harder than maybe they've gone after, I don't know, white quarterbacks or something like that, right? So all of these things, it's not as simple as like, I, I, oh. <laughs> anyway, I just, when you, as you were talking, I was thinking about that particular game with Cam Newton yeah. and just that that's another thing that he faces as a black quarterback on yes, the field. Yeah, certainly. Brent? Yeah, I mean, they, I found this to be a really compelling story and you know, I don't want anything to save the NFL. So when everybody's like, three black quarterbacks, are they here to save the NFL? I'm like, please don't. But (laughs) damn it, you charismatic young men. But anyway, I did hear Lamar Jackson. Did you hear what he said after? I can't remember which game it was where he said not bad for a running back. They were listing how he had done. And it was just so fascinating how how he he knew, like how he read – he knows very well what's being said about him. Right, and and yeah. so they're so conscious of it in a way that I feel like is just very intelligent and very articulate. And how do you respond to it? You know, and I know right. they're all going to say it motivates me, you know, because all these guys say that. But it's also got to wear on you. And yeah. um, it was just really interesting when he said, I just thought that was fascinating when they were reading out the stats of the games and he said, not bad for a running back. And then I just... Uh, Wanted to ask, what was the thing about Tom Brady challenging him to a race? Oh, he was, bring me up to they, speed on that, Amira. They were joking. So he was ta- so so Tom is like really self deprecating about the fact that he can't run. <laughs> it's been like a like a, his entire it's the career only because thing he's like self deprecating about. <laughs> no, he's self deprecating about a bunch of stuff. Okay, but, <laughs> but okay. this is like a particular like running joke. So he was he after the Ravens beat the Pats, he was joking with Lamar, and so he was saying. Let's do a 40-yard dash 
but he has to be on rollerblades on the grass. <laughs> and he was saying, like, put it on pay-per-view. Like, who would tune in to watch that? Like, as a way, like, how can we make it an even race? <laughs> because obviously he can't run at all. So it was like, the, and they had like a back and forth joking gotcha. about it. Gotcha. Yeah. But yeah, so, I mean, I think the other th- the other two things that, besides the players that playing, there's conversations around two, two black quarterbacks who aren't playing that I think informs and, and can be brought into this discussion. One, of course, is Kaepernick. I alluded to this in the beginning about how are we going to see these these folks become the face of the NFL and kind of save them from a continued critique, especially in the wake of the botched whatever workout it was and uh, Goodell's statements saying, you know, that was his chance. He'll never play in the NFL, et cetera, et cetera. The NFL is quote unquote moving on from Colin Kaepernick. So that's certainly one piece of it. But the other piece is a conversation that I was animated this week over the discussion of Mike Vick Another prominent black quarterback, of course, who served time charges related to a dog ring of dog fighting and and abuse towards the animals, who did his time, obviously re-entered the league, and then was it emerged this week he was um up to be guest a celebrity guest captain for the Pro Bowl, and this was met with a petition that circulated. So that he wouldn't be multiple, multiple positions. I read there were like three of them. Right. Yeah. So that he won't be a Pro Bowl captain in light of his previous offenses. And I just think, you know, this is certainly part of this conversation, Jess. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about Michael Vick this week, as especially once we're going to talk about black quarterbacks. There's nothing easy to say about this because, like, yeah, he went to prison for doing a horrible thing right and there's this amazing washington post piece from a just a few months ago about all the dogs the legacy of of the actual dogs that were rescued uh it's a really great piece and so it's like you know it's one of those where you're like i don't endorse like what he did obviously but he paid the price that we as a society have set out as the price that you pay Right. He lost his job for a while. He was in prison. He's apologized repeatedly. And he's actually taken up the cause of animal welfare and like put his name and his money behind, you know, undoing the work that he was a part of. And it's kind of like, what else are you going to ask at this point? And I know that there are people who are going to ask that he not be anywhere anymore. But it, this is also the same league that, like, he played on the same yes. team as Ben Roethlisberger. Yes, right. yes. And yes. there are people outside the stadium holding up signs against Vic when they have uh, someone who's been reported multiple times for rape behind the center, you know, taking – making the passes. Like, exactly. it's just – it's so hard to hold all of that and to see like the brunt that he, that Vic takes. And again, I understand the people who have a lot of feelings and they they differ from us. But like we do talk a lot about like what do you have to do to make amends? And to me, Vic has done basically everything you can ask of him except disappear. Um, exactly. And the fact that he's the one being asked to disappear at the same time that they have disappeared Colin Kaepernick. Right. Uh, I mean, it, it mm. pains me because Roger Goodell 
who I don't ever want to agree with on anything, has backed Vic up and has said, quote, he's paid every price for that. He's been accountable for it. He's worked aggressively with the Humane Society and other institutions to deal with animal rights and to make sure people don't make the same mistake he had. And I admire that. I know that there are people out there who will never forgive him. He knows that. And the fact that like I agree with Goodell on anything. Right. But in this case, I really do feel like this, it's hard. Like if you don't remember and you weren't there, like Michael Vick, before any of this happened, faced incredible racism from the point when he was at Virginia Tech, then when he became what the Atlanta Falcons quarterback, which was a very black city that became, you know, they were very excited about him. And he just faced so much racism before any of this happened. And I don't know, like thinking about the futures for Russell Wilson and Lamar Jackson, and Dak Prescott and all, you know, all these guys at this point, Deshaun Watson, like, what will we be saying about them 10 years from now? Right. And like, where will they be in our society? And I Hopefully they're not making choices like Michael Vick did. But I do feel like Vick tells us something about how we think about these men. Certainly. And I, I really liked your line about who's disposable and who's who's not and who's being asked to disappear. And I just I think that's really salient. And of course, the other thing with Vic and the thing that it feels like to a lot of black fans who watch and even who weren't supporters of him, but that like the amount of care and empathy and, you know, all of this stuff for animals on the part of white people feels very counterdistinct to like the empathy afforded to like little black children who get killed by police. And so the p- petitions that like immediately circle around on the behalf and in defense of dog, I think animates or, or, or feels very similar to this kind of running feeling like, you know, if you want white people on board, like mess with their animals, but like these same people who get very worked up. And I know, and I saw that there, there's this back and forth between, I don't know, Sarah Spain and somebody around this. And it's not, I mean, obviously there's many people who, critique Vic and also have a documented history of robustly talking about police brutality, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that it's a feeling that's not even easily dismissed. And it goes to what you're saying, Jess, is like, this is what people get mad about. The fact that there's rapists and murderers and, you know, all these things haven't elicited a similar emotion or long, long standing kind of backlash is revealing so we will continue to see as this plays out and we move towards the nfl postseason all right it's time for everyone's favorite segment the burn pile brenda what are you burning today this week i am dragging a classic burn pile character back on the incinerator but with a new twist I am metaphorically burning Nick Saban, University of Alabama's football coach. I know it will shock everyone. I love the pep. I love the pep, Thank you. (laughs) You need it to take on this guy week after week. So, yeah, I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up on trying to spawn Nick Saban hate among our listeners and the world in general. But this time, it's not for taking an immorally high salary the highest in the country for a public employee, except for I can't remember the other football coach that takes an immorally high salary, but also spreading his patronage and corruption with an internship program that works like this. 
You're a big time college coach that gets fired. Sad face. To keep receiving your undeserved exorbitant salary, you usually have a clause that says you have to try and get another job to get your, you know, payoff, your fired payoff. Oh. So, so oh. guess what you do? You get your buddy, Nick Saban, to hire you as an analyst. Oh. So, so I'll just give you an example Shit. of some of the fired coaches that are interning under Nick Saban, an educator. Former Houston head coach, Major Applewhite, who makes $43,350. $43,000, you ask yourself. My, that's a very low salary. But don't worry, because he's getting millions of dollars in buyouts that he now doesn't have to, like, deal with because he's technically got a job. Arizona head coach Mike Stoops, who clocks in at $76,500, and former, get this, this is, this is my favorite, former Tennessee head coach Butch Jones, who's making $35,000. That seems much lower, but don't worry because he's getting $8.3 million from University of Tennessee through 2021. Oh my goodness. Bargain, Nick Saban. And I just want to let you know, when he was asked, Nick Saban, about former Tennessee head coach Butch Jones's job, he said, quote, he's an intern, end of quote. <laughs> oh, my goodness. oh my god last piece of information analysts are called analysts because these intern analysts because they can serve as staff in addition to the 10 assistant coaches that are allowed per school under ncaa rules so oh it doesn't gosh. in any way infringe upon nick saban's ability to pay his 10 assistant coaches 7.5 million dollars this year making them the nation's highest paid staff among public schools so I would like to th- throw on the burn pile and, and oh, and there are schools that are following suit. Many other coaches have noticed Nick Saban's fantastic internship program and have started internship programs of their own, also hiring former defamed college coaches. So I would like to throw this on the burn pile. Nick Saban, of course, only metaphorically, but not metaphorically, this internship program and the graft and corruption that is college football. Burn. Wow, burn. burn. My goodness. <laughs> Fuck him. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> I'll go next. So over the past week, you saw a conversation incited by uh, Lizzo's appearance at a Lakers game. They were playing the Timberwolves. She had a black dress on in the front. It was chilling. The party was on in the back. It was like a cutout circle around mm. her ass. And she twerked in a thong, which resulted in <laughs> seemingly endless thing pieces and tweets calling out her behavior. And I'm not saying the dress wasn't ugly. I found myself personally did it just it wasn't aesthetically pleasing there was just a hole in the back of the dress but <laughs> a lot of the pushback to it for me seems not to be rooted in at all in what she wore or the fact that she danced but how she looked she's unapologetically a fat black woman who just does not give a fuck what you think about her body and the fact that she is so unabashedly herself in her skin I think really frustrates a lot of people and the reason why I know that is a lot of the critique on her had this little phrase that set me up a wall 
It was like, how could Lizzo do this in a family-friendly environment? Oh, no. The Laker game? The Lakers game is a family-friendly environment? She was more clothed than the Laker girls usually are, first and foremost. Second of all, I don't know if you've ever attended a sporting event, but they're not fucking family-friendly. Like, when I bring my kids to sporting events, from college level to professional level, I'm consciously aware of the fact that around them is craziness happening, and being said, like, I just, the, the, that was the giveaway. Just say that you don't like the fact that she has the audacity to be fat and black and, and, and full of herself and into it. Like, have the audacity to say that you're telling on yourself by trying to cite a family friendly environment is as the reason. It's a time and a place. What are you talking about? There has been, like, this is not a family-friendly environment. Sports arenas see unspeakable level of alcohol consumption, of swearing, of racist behavior, of of, of fan abuse of players, of, of interactions with scantily clad ladies. This is, like, what are you talking about? You're just revealing yourself to be trash quite honestly and so all of that rhetoric and you know the the double standard that we have for a body that doesn't comport to what we think is conventionally attractive the audacity that Lizzo has to be fat and loud and not just kind of quiet and sulking somewhere in a corner is tripping people out and I wish that they would all shut up in the meantime I'll burn it down burn burn All right, Jess, take us home. Okay, so I mentioned a while back, while burning the fact that Youngstown State hired a person to coach their men's and women's tennis teams who had previously been punished by the that exact school for sexually assaulting a, a fellow student, that the reporter who uncovered what happened at Youngstown, Kenny Jacoby, he promised that he'd have more fuel for the burn pile. Or that I assumed that he would. Um, While the fuel is here, this week Jacoby rolled out a four-part investigative series at USA Today. There is one major stat that's the backbone of the entire thing. Quote, an investigation by the USA Today Network identified at least 28 current and former athletes since 2014 who transferred to NCAA schools despite being administratively disciplined for a sexual offense at another college. It found an additional five who continued playing after being convicted or disciplined for such offenses through the court. And the reason this is possible is because the NCAA itself has no mechanism of accountability. It leaves it up to the schools, and as Jacoby's reporting shows, coaches claim ignorance because they mainly rely on each other to pass along necessary information. Quote, most schools lack formal background check policies, instead relying on former coaches' words and a questionnaire called a transfer tracer that often fails to capture past disciplinary problems. This is excellent reporting, again, from Kenny uh, as someone who has been writing and talking about the ease of transferring to avoid accountability for at least five years, it's nice to see these numbers. But his reporting also shows how difficult it is to get access to this information to make any kind of exhaustive count, how almost no one involved in this decision making, including the NCAA and almost all coaches and university administrators won't talk publicly. Like one of the, when I tweeted this out, I tweeted it out with like, decline to comment, decline to comment. Like I was quoting all the moments when no one would talk to him. Um, And it points out the way that the system is actually set up to allow this ease of transfer. And I think that's really important. Quote, players regularly exploit 
the NCAA's own loopholes, actually, I would just say it's set up this way, to circumvent its one meaningful penalty for those who transfer while suspended or expelled, a year of bench time. Athletes can go to a junior college for a minimum of one semester before returning to a D1 school, or they can transfer to another NCAA school before the discipline takes effect. So Kenny calls those loopholes... I kind of just think it's set up that way on purpose. Um, In Power Plays last week, Lindsay focused on how many of the survivors in Jacoby's reporting who reported athletes were actually athletes themselves. And this is something that I wrote about in my book. It's actually how I ended the chapter where I write about how the NCAA doesn't care about gendered violence. I focus on the athletes who report other athletes. I always find these stories particularly devastating because it reveals which athletes matter to the organizational body theoretically tasked with protecting the welfare of all athletes. And then there's a story that Kenny uncovered where Betsy DeVos, Department of, um, where her Department of Education stepped in to help a football player who was expelled from Oregon after being found responsible for assaulting two students. From Kenny's reporting, quote, in part because of the apparent predatory nature of the acts, the university had marked his transcript with a rarely used notation that would alert other schools to his actions. Records show, quote, expelled for sexual misconduct. His transcript read, the player's mother appealed to the Office for Civil Rights at the Department of Education, which I've burned before for the way that they are changing all of these things in order to um, be, it's, it's tougher to hold anyone accountable. And the Department of Education removed that wording from his transcript. He transferred to a community college in Texas, where he spent a year on the team before transferring to Prairie View A&M, where he is on the roster today. He's very good. You might see him in the NFL. I don't think there's easy answers here. And Jacoby did end the series looking at the work of Brenda Tracy, who we've talked about on the show, who I've interviewed for the show, um, about how Tracy is trying to get the NCAA in schools to do something to close the loopholes that allow players to bounce around from school to school. I'm cynical about what can be done and or if anything actually will be. But no matter what, and once again, I want to burn the NCAA of washing their hands of all of this for their cowardly behavior when it comes to dealing with real issues. Um, so I want to burn it. After all that burning, it's time to shout out some badass women of the week. Um, First, our honorable mentions. Ana Paula Oliveira, the first woman to be named the head of the referee commission at the Paulista Football Federation, one of the world's largest in Brazil. Also, shout out to Olympian and flamethrower Elena Myers-Taylor, who posted a video of herself doing back squats with 130 kegs, which is 286 pounds, I think, on a bar. She's over six months pregnant and doing three sets of four squats at that weight. Incredible. And side note, yeah, she knows what she's doing. Her doctor knows what she's doing. Get out of her mentions with the foolishness. Also... Canadian speed skater Kim Boutin, who won her fourth career gold medal in the World Cup circuit in the 50 meters last weekend. U.S. Open winner Bianca Andreescu, who won the 2019 Lou Marsh Trophy, which is awarded to Canada's Athlete of the Year. She's the first ever tennis player to get this honor there. Um, And I want to shout out two teams. The first, the Jediah Eagles, won the Jediah Women's Football League, beating their rivals Miras in the final. Shreen interviewed one of the founder of the Eagles in episode 127 if you want to learn more about the league. And I also wanted to send a special shout out to Stanford for winning the Women's College Cup. Lindsay talked to Lori Lindsay about it on last week's show, uh, 136. Check it out if you want to do a look back. Um, they beat 
UNC on penalty kicks, 5-4. It was a thrilling match. Um, it was the third championship for the team. And they started the tournament by scoring more goals in the game than anyone had in the history of the event. They had a tremendous run to the title, even beating Penn State along the way, which made me sad. But <laughs> And a lot of those women are phenomenal and have bright futures. It's not the last you'll hear of them. So congrats on your championship, Stanford. And now, a drum roll, please. Okay, our Badass Woman of the Week has been here before. It is, of course, Megan Rapino, who is named Sports Illustrated Sports Person of the Year. And this award is not simply for Rapino being the badass that she is on the pitch, but also her actions off of it. In particular, her badassery when she accepted this award, where she noted that the fact that she was only the fourth woman ever to get this award and she got up there to get the award and she called out basically everybody in the room. She said, is it true that I'm the fourth woman deserving of this award? No, I don't think so. And then she said, is it true that so few writers of color deserve to be featured in this publication? No. Is it true that so few women's voices deserve to be heard and deserve to be read in this publication? I don't think so. And you could hear the applause in the room get thinner and thinner as they realized that she was calling out everybody there. Them. And that just is an example of the badass that she is. I'd like to end with a quote from that speech where she says, My success bears witness to not only the necessity of speaking truth to power, but also the power of truth. I invite, I encourage, I urge, I demand, I will hold your ass to this. And I believe that Megan Rapino. Those words, your badassery, your ballsiness, and your general all-around dopeness on and off the pitch has made you our badass woman of the week. Okay, what's good? What's good in your world, Jessica? I am in the middle of one of my favorite things during the season, which is making and decorating sugar cookies. I just find it... I find it fun. I It's like I was thinking yesterday as I was very meticulously decorating these cookies that it's like when people buy coloring books and they're, you know, it's that same sort of like creative energy. And it's just, I find it so much fun. I did a double batch. Like I have a lot of cookies. So I've been into that. I am going to Minnesota, which I'm not a cold weather person. So that part of it is not great for me, but I'm going at the end of the week because two of my friends got married over the summer in Scotland, and they're doing their stateside celebration uh, in Minneapolis later this week. And I get to go. One of my best friends lives in the cities, and she's going to be my date. So I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, that's awesome. I always wish I lived closer so I could eat all the wonderful food you're baking. I know. I know. I wish it was easy to ship it, but it's not. It's like you have to, like, bubble wrap it. <laughs> right. It's like, ah. Uh, all right, Bren, what's good with you? Uh, Are you surviving uh, like, the end of the like semester? Kind of like not, almost. Uh-huh. But I do like peek out from the mountains of papers, which is, of course, proverbial <laughs> because they're online. But I can peek out and see that it's almost over. I do see it. So just about 70 more papers to go and that many grades to compute. So it's going to be a busy week. It's time to boss up. But I am looking forward to the AHA, the American Historical Association, 
which um which sounds so stuffy but amira and i will make it super fun and i'm gonna get to see her and be on a panel with her about a couple two two. panels one on you know radicalism in sport uh, sponsored by the radical history review and then another one on athletes and labor so i'm pretty psyched about that i'm really excited to see you amira i'm hoping we get matching tattoos and um i know you know all that other fun stuff I'm very excited. I'll go next. That's basically my what's good. I will, I, for real, let me tell you what's really good. I feel like a terrible person admitting this. So I'm on leave this semester. <laughs> and so I'm not grading. And what's really good is like, I'm seeing everybody do the end of semester freak out and be buried <laughs> under grading and like do the grading procrastination where they're like, oh, that shed I never built. Now's a great time <laughs> to <know>. do it. <laughs> so, like their house yes. is the cleanest it's ever yep. been. Like, like all of the all of the things that happen at the end of the semester and I'm just like not part of it. And so like it's I, I can't say it anywhere. I'm sorry that I'm saying it in front of you, Bren. But like low key, that's what's really good right now. What's good me. for you is my bad. Like, right. My pain. Just like, oh my God. <laughs> so well, cause like, you know, I'm still worked a lot during this leave and I have a lot of students I'm supervising. So there's many parts of the semester where I was like not feeling super leavey but now when I'm not grading let me tell you I am thankful so yeah so that and I what I am surviving barely is the deluge of children related activities that this time of year brings I have in just the past few days survived and Michael's been working. So I've been solo parenting through a lot of these. I've survived a Samari gala performance, choir concert, Jackson's belt test, and then belt ceremony, which were not on the same day because that would be too convenient. And then Samari's first dance, the Mm -hmm. winter jam. That was, despite the, let me just tell you, emails from middle school principals that say we don't encourage coupling do absolutely nothing to discourage coupling. Yeah. Um, So we survived that on Friday and then we had like approximately six holiday parties and even more next week and then another show and, you know, I'm just... And Jackson's birthday party. So it's just been a lot of running around, but I'm very excited to finally go get our tree today. It's been raining around here, so we haven't been able to go cut it down because, you know, we live that central PA life now and cut down our own tree. Um, like with a yeah, with an saw. axe? With a, with a saw. With an axe. <laughs> With a saw. Okay. <laughs> with a saw, a handsaw. And I should say, by right, you chop yes, down a tree. With we a, do, well, well, like, well, right, right. I, like, I don't chop down the tree. I supervise and delegate. Let's be clear. I Michael obviously have never it. participated. So. I'll take okay. a video of it today for you. So, thank that you, will Amira. Be happening. It's still a little wet, but it's not like pouring rain. So, we're going to do that today. We're going to decorate settle in and then i also am very excited for ha which will be here before we know it i'm excited to see everybody i'm excited to see bren and do these kick-ass panels and just celebrate new years and new beginnings and same old same old history in new york
That's it for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. Thanks for joining us. You can listen and subscribe to Burn It All Down on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Certainly rate it, share it from whatever platform you listen to it as well. We love using those ratings to help us reach new listeners and let people who don't know about the show know about the podcast. We're also on Facebook and on Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod, on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. And if you want more information about the show, for links, transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. There you can email us directly from the site to send feedback or listener mail. We love listener mail. If you're a Patreon subscriber, please send in listener mail for questions that we can answer on Behind the Burn video segments. We love to hear from you. Also, you have a link to our Patreon should you not be one and want to sign up for extra content, longer interviews, giveaways, and our monthly Behind the Burn vlog that gives you a little peek behind the curtains of what we do here. Of course, from our website, you can or you can also go grab some merchandise from our Teespring shop. Just a reminder, from now until the end of the year, if you use the code HOLIDAYS, you get 10% off your order. So there's still time to make it for some of the holidays if you're gifting, or if you just want a blanket or a hoodie to warm up with as it gets colder, check out our Teespring merch shop. This is our last live episode, quote-unquote live. We have a few best of Burn It All Down episodes coming to you soon to close out the year. Until then, I'm Amir Rose Davis. On behalf of my co-host, Jessica Luther, Brenda Elsie, and all of us here at Burn It All Down, burn on, not out, and we'll see you soon, flamethrowers.